So as we've been talking about, uh, last week was begun this season of Lent, uh, the season that the church enters into an especial time of discipleship, of following Jesus, of, of focusing on him in a new way. And as we've been talking about it, we're talking about following uh, Jesus through John's version of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' sermon in the upper room, when he talks with his disciples about what it means to follow him. And as a church, we've taken on this, this desire to pray more this season of Lent, for prayer to be our focus. It began last Sunday when we started this week of prayer, that the, the devotions that hopefully many of you had a chance to read and to work through this week, this last week. And then yesterday, uh, coming together as a time of prayer as a church. That as a church, as a church seeking to be healthy and a church seeking to be more missional, that we realize that prayer is central to who we are. It is the foundation of who we are and where we're headed. So we've been working on this part of Jesus speaking through or talking with his disciples in the upper room. And this is just, we pick it up, we're just after where Judas has left. Goes to go and betray Jesus. And it's amazing here is that Jesus says, Now the Son of Man is glorified. Not the Son of Man will be, but now the Son of Man is. And many times looking through and how are we supposed to understand this like right now, Jesus? And, and people who studied John a lot think that Jesus is saying here, kind of like in the prophetic sense, that it is so certain to happen that Jesus says, now already he's being glorified. When you start thinking about it, it's surprising that Jesus would say this right here, right now, knowing what was coming. Knowing the torture, the cross, the ridicule, the abandonment. But he says, glory. The Son of Man will be glorified. So we start breaking this down a little bit about what does he mean here? And the first thing we pick up on is the Son of Man. Many of you have read through the Gospels and you, you recognize this, this way that Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. You know, oftentimes people have, there's these two parts. There's the Son of Man that we read of that's mentioned in Psalm 8. And it often refers to just people. Just ordinary people. But also we remember that Son of Man was mentioned when Daniel talks about it in his prophecy of what will come. So that as in his night visions or in the vision he saw at night, he saw one coming like the Son of Man with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and he was brought into his presence and he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And all people, nations, people of every language came and worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not go away. A kingdom that will never be destroyed. I think this is more the image of what Jesus is talking about when he says the Son of Man is glorified. I think he's talking about this image drawing from Daniel and what he saw. But the Son of Man would be glorified, exalted, highly praised, honored, and you start thinking about it, it's ironic that Jesus would say this, glorified as he's heading towards suffering and the cross. See, it's interesting for me is that Jesus says this right now. As we read through the other Gospels, like Matthew and Mark and Luke, they, they tend to focus on the glory of the resurrection. But this is where the glory is. They, they point out and they draw the theological importance of the cross, but also they're saying, but we can't wait, it's almost like they're saying, we can't wait to get the part where Jesus rises again. 
That's the glorious part. Well, as we read through John's Gospel, John, having written a little bit later than the other guys, that John sees the whole thing as glory. He sees the cross, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, all of these things as part of one glory. And we're a little bit more used to this now after 2,000 years. I mean, we have songs that we sing like The Wondrous Cross. And we sing that, and I don't know how often you think about this, but that's a pretty ironic statement, The Wondrous Cross. I'd be like us today singing about The Wondrous Electric Chair or The Wondrous Hangman's Noose. In the time of Christ, the cross was a place of execution an excruciating and degrading way to die. It was the way that they killed rebels and slaves. So it's no wonder to me that in the first century, those Jewish people who were around Jesus, the fact that he died on the cross, it became hard for them. Paul talks about in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, a person dying on a cross is foolishness to the Greeks. Philosophically, it's just ridiculous. But he also said it's a stumbling block to the Jewish people. Because their idea of Messiah has two main parts. One of them is great military leader who's going to come and conquer and make the nation of Israel great. The second part is great religious leader who's going to come and return the people to faithfulness that they begin following God faithfully again. This is what Mashiach does. And then they also have this text of, of Deuteronomy that says, it's cursed is the man or the person who dies on a cross or on a tree. And so here you have Jesus, a man who claims to be Mashiach, and there he is crucified on a tree. It's no wonder that they see him and they can't recognize who he is. As I was working through this, I was reminded of the time when, when a Jewish person, or actually a rabbi, came to one of my classes when I was in, in Regent in Vancouver. And I give him credit. I mean, here's this room filled with seminary students. Most of us, people like me, God forgive me, guys who think they already know it all. And he comes there and he starts talking with us about Judaism. And one of my friends, and I don't remember, honestly, I don't remember much of what he said, but I remember one of my classmates asking him, well, what about Jesus? What about him? Like, how come you don't recognize him as the Christ? And, and honestly, I remember him getting a little bit agitated, almost like, you know, kid, I've heard this question a hundred times. <laughs> but what he said was, Jesus failed Messiahship 101. Getting at the point that he did not fulfill the role of Messiah. At least not in this man's mind. And so, it's surprising when he starts talking about glory and the cross. And we've had a few, you know, a couple thousand years to get used to this idea. And maybe we take it for granted at times. But when you start thinking about the fact that the cross is a humiliating place to die, a place for rebels and slaves to be tortured in a, in a way that would kill them. Jesus takes that, that humiliation and he turns it to glory. We see the cross now and we see the Messiah. We see the Christ. We see the Savior who has come to redeem the world. This is what Christ has done. He's glorified on the, Christ, on the cross. But how does this work? I mean... What happens here? Well, how is, the how is the cross and the resurrection, how are these two together, glory? I think about the cross and how the cross was this moment of salvation. It was this moment that our sin was forgiven. 
but because of the sacrifice of God's Son that we were made right with the Father. Our verse, one of our verses today came from Isaiah. Just a few verses down from what we read, it talks about the, the wounds that brought us peace were upon him. By his wounds we have been healed. That Jesus took our place, stood in our place, took the punishment that, that as sinful people we deserved. He took that and he reconciled us to God. But not only that, on the cross we have this amazing example of who God is, of how deeply God loves us. I think of that song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. That he would give his only son to, save a, to make a wretch his treasure. We see the love of God on the cross, exemplified, not just talked about, not just poetically spoken, but lived out right in front of us. We see the love of God. And in this surprising way, we see the victory of God. On the cross, most people or many people, when they look at it without faith or without help from the Holy Spirit, they see absolute destruction, complete failure. But we see the victory of God. We see death defeated. We see the grip of sin defeated. We see Satan defeated. So you begin to see how cross becomes more complicated with Jesus. Becomes a place of glory. But also that's not the end of it. We also realize that there is a resurrection. That after the death and suffering there is the resurrected Jesus. He rises again. And in this, we see that God has vindicated him. God has said, no, Jesus was right. And all those things that he talked about, all the things that he did on the cross, they actually happened because he's risen again. And in his rising, he gives us new life. Life that goes on forever. Life that does not end when we die. And actually, I think as, as Carl was saying, that life actually begins in its fullest sense. And we begin living in our fullest sense. And we shed this mortal coil. And we are present with Christ. Doesn't this, not, does this resurrection, does it not give us hope? Hope that this is just the beginning. This life that we live now, these things that we wrestle with, many of you, I know the things that you're working through, the things you're struggling with, it gets better than this. It gets a whole lot better than this. And this gives us hope now. So I see this cross and this resurrection as this hour of glory that John or that Jesus has been talking about in John's gospel. This whole weekend, from Good Friday to Easter Sunday, this whole thing is glory. It's not surprising then that as people study John's Gospel, they, they look at the first 12 chapters and they refer to it as the book of signs because John is often talking about signs. Signs that point beyond themselves to the glory of Christ, the glory of Jesus. But here, in chapter 13, where we're at this morning to the end, they call this the book of glory because we see God glorified. We see God glorified in the Son and we see the Son glorified in the Father. So Jesus is talking with his disciples. He says, there is glory coming. I don't want you to misunderstand what's happening. This is not failure. This is glory. The cross, the resurrection, all of this is the glory of God. 
But as Jesus goes to do this, as he goes to accomplish this work on the cross, there is this degree of separation. The disciples feel it. When he's taken, when he's arrested, imprisoned, and hung on the cross, they feel this degree of separation as he dies and descends into death. So Jesus prepares them for this. He prepares them for it. He says, I'm going away. Children, where I'm going, you cannot follow. At least not right now. For me, the fascinating word that Jesus uses here is the word children. Some translations talk about dear children, and ours talks about my children. And I started thinking about how, how close this is to the times when, in the morning when I'm waking up and I'm getting ready to come here to the church. And I start putting on my jacket and Shane will walk up to me and say, Daddy, where are you going? Where are you going? Church? And I'll say, yeah, I need to go. He says, no, Daddy, stay and play with me. Stay here with me, Daddy. I want to play with you. I say, son, I, I need to go. I have responsibilities. God has called me there. I have work that I need to do. And he still, you can see in his head, he starts thinking, and he, he's a smart kid. He, Okay, so dad's not going to stay. So he goes, can I come with you? <laughs> Daddy, can I come with you? I tell him, not now, not yet, but one day you will. You'll come with me. I see so many connections here with what Jesus says to his disciples. He's saying, I have to go and do this. And they're saying, don't go. Lord, don't go. He says, God has called me to this. This is what I've come to do. And they say, okay, well, let me then let us come with you. And he says, you can't come with me right now. At least not yet. So it's not surprising to me when I see Peter's response. You know, Jesus talks about, I'm going away, and then he gives them this amazing new commandment to love each other. Peter doesn't hear any of, all, any of that. He just says, Lord, what do you mean I can't go with you? And I hear in Peter's, almost in Peter's voice, and maybe, I, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I hear him almost saying like, Jesus, my legs work just fine. I can follow you anywhere. In fact, you know that usually when we're going somewhere, I walk ahead of you. How many times do we see in Scripture where Peter gets too far in front of Jesus? He's saying, I know, Jesus, I can come with you. I'm strong. I can walk at least as fast as you, oftentimes faster. And Jesus graciously says to him, where I'm going, you can't go. You're not able to come with me. <laughs> and Peter, God bless him, says, what do you mean I'm not able to go with you? What do you mean I'm not able? I am willing, I am ready to lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, Peter, you, you think you're going to lay down your life for me? Peter, you still don't get it. Peter, you're still thinking the things of men. And I'm talking about the things of God. Peter, do you think you can drink this cup that I'm going to drink? Do you think you can bear this cross that I'm going to bear? Do you really think you can die this death that I'm going to die? Peter, you, you think you're going to die for me? I, I am going to die for you and for many. You see, Peter, not only are you not really ready to die for me yet, but actually before the cock crows, before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me. 
You see, Peter, you're not the hero here. As zealous as you are, as much as sometimes you, your mouth gets ahead of everything else, you are not the hero here. You are not the Savior. I am. I can see Jesus speaking to his disciples and saying, the Father has called me to do this. Trust me. Trust me. See, this, this is still hard for us, this trusting God. We still feel this separation from God. The first disciples felt that when Jesus was taken, arrested, and killed, they thought it was over. They thought he was gone. But then he came, he rose again, and he spent time with them, but then he ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of God now. And so many of us still struggle with this distance we feel with Christ. I talk with people who are interested in Jesus. And they say, how do I relate? How can I even relate to a God who I can't see or talk to or hear them speak to me. What do you mean, relate to God? How do I believe in someone I can't see or someone I can't hear their voice? Or sometimes I think about people when, like, like some people, maybe some of you are like me, and, and relationship with Christ is it's hard to explain, but it's there. And the more time you spend with Jesus, you get those moments when you feel his presence and you feel like he's closer than your own skin. And there's this joy and this amazing sense of of peace and God's love for us. And you feel that sometimes for a few minutes, sometimes just for a flash, and it just stirs up this desire, like, I want to be with you more, Jesus. I want to be closer to you. I know I'm supposed to know all this stuff about you and, and that's good, but I want to be close to you. And we feel this burning. It's almost like the closer we get, the further apart we feel. The more we spend time with him, the more distance we feel. Maybe some of you can relate to what I'm talking about. Well, I was reading, uh, it was Larry Crabb a few almost a year ago now. He had this great point. He said, what if that's how it's supposed to be? What if in our following Jesus, we're not supposed to feel totally satisfied this side of heaven? Maybe that doesn't happen until we are with Christ. Maybe we're actually supposed to feel this desire for him because it continues to draw us closer to him. It continues to pull us on. Maybe this is the point. I say this not to discourage you, but to to encourage you. Maybe some of you feel this. To encourage you that maybe this is God's design to keep drawing you in faith. So Jesus tells his disciples that his hour has come, that this glory, that God would be glorified, but he says, it's going to mean that I'm going to be separated from you. And as disciples, we still feel that. As his followers today, we still feel that distance. How many times have I heard some of you say, I just wish I could just have Jesus sit in front of me. I could just ask him these questions. I wish I could just, I feel like I wish I could just hug him and just hold him because things are hard right now. We still feel this separation. But thankfully, I have some good news for you. Jesus has given this new commandment for us. 
this new way to make it through, this fruitful way forward. He says, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another, just as I have loved you. Now I want to stop there just for a second. The first thing he says is, love one another just as I have loved you. And I, this, it's interesting to pause here on a preposition, <laughs> just as. In Greek it's one word, it's kathos. But it's important. It says, just as. But also, as some, as Dale Bruner talks about, he says that this is also has a sense of since. So listen to it like this. Love one another just as I have loved you and love one another since I have loved you. So the just as part, I think most of us are used to that. When you start thinking about that, what does that mean? How does Jesus love us? Through sacrifice, laying down his life for us. So calling us, like this is our example for us to love one another by laying down our lives for each other by serving each other, setting aside our selfishness for the sake of each other. But Jesus also loved us actively. When he says, I love you, I think Jesus means more than just, I feel warm, fuzzy feelings about you. I think Jesus is also talking about that I actively love you. I demonstrate my love for you. We talked about it last week when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. That is an amazing act of love. Here is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the creator of everything, kneeling down and washing the feet of those who follow him. It's an amazing image. And he says, do this for each other. Serve each other like this. Put yourself below each other to serve each other. And I start thinking about our lives, the ways that we serve each other how this practically works out for us. When one of our friends, one of the people of this family, this faith family calls and say, man, I've got this project I'm working on and man, it's up to my eyeballs. And we say to each other, I'd be happy to come over and help. Can I come over this weekend and help you with that? It's how we serve each other. Because also we serve people even outside of our church in similar ways. You're walking down the street and someone asks you for, for some money for some food. You know, and we can give them money or we can say, you know, get a job. Or we can say, why don't we go have lunch together? I want to give you some time, too. I want to treat you like a human. I want to treat you like a person. I want to demonstrate love to you. So there's this sense when in this word kathos, it means just as, but also this sense of sense. Because I start talking about these things, about taking time out of our busy days, and I can imagine some of you thinking, yeah, how am I supposed to do that, Jason? Do you understand how much I have to do? Do you understand all the things I've got going? How do we do this? And this is where the sense part comes in. Love each other since I have loved you that Christ, that Jesus in loving us has given us the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who changes who we are. Who works in us and causes us to do things that we would never do on our own. But not only that, but the more that we understand how deeply Christ has loved us, how deeply Jesus has loved us, we can't help but love others. I can speak to you from my own experience. The closer I am with Jesus, the easier it is for me to love people. 
to take time and say, you know what, all those other things I've got to do, they can wait. <laughs> Tell me, what's going on? Let's go have lunch. Let me buy you something to eat. When we realize how deeply Jesus loves us, it is easier for us to love each other. Maybe you're thinking about, okay, so love each other. How does this work out? Well, I was thinking about, there are two places where I think about this. There's more, trust me, there's more, but two are very common. One is where we take each other for granted, is in our marriage. Husbands with your wives and wives with your husbands. Love each other. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. Serving. <laughs> I was thinking about it, how? And guys, I know it's a big deal for us to empty the dishwasher without having to be asked. I know we expect a parade when that happens, but I'm encouraging you to do that a little bit more. Demonstrate your love for your wife. Pursue your wife. Remind her of her beauty of her grace. And wives, I'm encouraging you to pursue your husbands. Encourage them. Things are not always easy. Sometimes they feel pressure like they are still failing. Encourage them. Love your husband. But I also see this, this call to love each other fitting right here in this church with these people sitting next to you, sharing this room with you. Loving one another. That even when it's hard, even when there's things that we've said to each other that hurt each other, things that we disagree about, that we still love each other. I'm not always saying like, because <laughs> you can love someone even though you may not particularly like them at the moment. You can still love them. Love each other. Because I think Christ loves the church. I know people, even Christians, get pretty fed up with it. There was a few times in my life where I thought, man, what a broken place. The last thing I want to do is spend time there. But God has been gracious to me. And I believe that the more that you love Jesus, the more you will love his church, his people. But here's the cool thing. As we love each other, this will testify to the glory of the gospel. Jesus talks about it. He says, love each other because everybody will know you are my disciples by the way you love each other. So, miracles are amazing. Sometimes they're convincing to people. Great theological arguments, airtight cases of why you should believe Jesus, helpful for some. But Jesus doesn't talk about that here. He says, let them know you are my disciples by your love. Because people can argue with airtight cases, trust me. People can dismiss miracles, oh, that was just an interesting coincidence. But it's hard to argue with this community loving each other well. For us, caring for each other, bearing each other's burdens. It proclaims the gospel in ways that are hard to do with words. So I hear Jesus speaking about this missionally, love one another. As we love each other, the mission of this church will grow. I pray that you hear God speaking this morning. I pray that you hear the Spirit speaking to you. And we hear that, that the hour of glory is in the cross and the resurrection. Both and. 
that Jesus reshapes our idea of what it means to die on a cross. That we see this amazing love of God, this salvation. I pray also that you see that this cross, this work that Jesus did, required a degree of separation, but that's okay. He's still with us. And maybe that yearning we have to be closer to him is good. It draws us closer to him. But here's the great part. He's given us a new commandment. This new way to help us forward, even though Jesus feels distant at times, is to love each other. To love each other just as he did. And since he has loved us, to proclaim this amazing news of who God is. This amazing love of this Savior who's come for us. I pray you hear God speaking those things to you. Amen.